Good morning. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Mark Schuler. I'm a member of this congregation. I want to 
extend a special welcome to anyone joining us here this morning, maybe for the first time. We are here online and in person. Since 1870, UU Wassa has served as a vital voice of liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram for updates. And with that, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. You'll find the words printed in the order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. All right, if you would be willing to rise as able and join us in the opening hymn. It's number 205 in the hymnal, Amazing Grace.
please remain standing for our affirmation. You'll find the words in your order of service. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other in our doxology. ago, our elementary group had an outdoor RE session where we made chalk art. You may have used the hopscotch they wanted to share with the congregation so we could play together. Or you may have come across in the parking lot the giant stained glass chalice that they created that said, Love Lives Here. In that session, we talked about symbols of faith, specifically the symbolism of the chalice and the history behind it. And as our congregation explores how we might be involved with the resettlement efforts here in our community, I've been thinking a lot about that lesson and the symbolism of the chalice. So this morning I wanted to share with you the story of how the chalice came to be. This history is adapted from a piece called The Healing Cup, The Story of the Flaming Chalice by Noreen Kimball. Now most, but not all, UU churches across the U.S. and Canada this morning lit a chalice to mark the beginning of their service. But this was not always the case. Rather, the chalice's story begins in World War II. During that war, a lot of people living in Eastern Europe were in danger of being put into prison or killed by Nazi soldiers. A group of Unitarians in Boston came together to form the Unitarian Service Committee. We know it now as the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee. And their plan was to help people in danger from the Nazis. The director of the service committee was a Unitarian minister named Charles Joy. Reverend Joy was in charge of the whole secret group of agents and messengers who worked hard trying to find safe routes for people to escape. Reverend Joy and his assistants often needed to ask governments and other organizations for help to save people who were in danger. They would send messages to anyone who might be able to give them money, transportation, or safe routes. But because they were a new organization, not many people had heard of them. This made it much harder for Reverend Joy and the people of Unitarian Service Committee to get the help they needed. In those days during the war when danger was everywhere, lots of people were running away from their home countries. Often people who were escaping and people who wanted to help didn't speak the same language. So Reverend Joy thought it would be much better if the Service Committee had an official symbol or picture to help identify its members. With the picture or symbol, it wouldn't matter if folks read or spoke the same language. So he went to a very talented man named Hans Deutsch for help. Deutsch had escaped the Nazis in Paris where he was in danger because he had released cartoons showing how evil the Nazis were. 
Reverend Joy asked Deutsch to create a symbol to print on service committee papers to make them look important. He wanted the symbol to impress governments and people who had the power to help provide safety. For his drawing, Deutsch borrowed an old symbol of strength and freedom from Czechoslovakia, a chalice with a flame. Reverend Joy wrote to his friends in Boston that the new symbol seemed to show the real spirit of the Unitarian religion. It showed a chalice or a cup that was used for giving a healing drink to others, and it showed a flame on top of the chalice because the flame was often used to represent a spirit of helpfulness and sacrifice. And so the flaming chalice became the official symbol of the Unitarian Service Committee. Many years later, the flaming chalice became a symbol of Unitarian Universalist groups all over the world. And by the 70s, enough Unitarian Universalists had heard the story of the flaming chalice symbol that they became, began lighting a flaming chalice as part of their worship services. So what does it mean to have a symbol like this? Well, one thing it means is wherever you go, if you see a chalice, you know there's going to be a bunch of UUs. Having a symbol can also remind you, though, of what's most important to you and what our faith calls us to do. And sometimes that reminder can be really important. One very old woman told the f of how the flaming chalice of her homeland, Czechoslovakia, helped her while she was in a Nazi prison camp. Printed under the picture of the Czech flaming chalice was the motto, which in English reads, truth overcomes or truth prevails. Every single morning in that terrible camp, the old woman said she traced a picture of the flaming chalice in the sand with her finger, and she wrote the motto underneath it. It gave me strength to live each day, she said. Whenever she drew the chalice in the dirt, she was reminded that someday the world will remember the important truth that every single person is important and should be free to think and believe as they choose. When we see people light the chalice at the beginning of our service every Sunday, we can enjoy it because it's a lovely thing to do. But we can also remember the story of the flaming chalice and the strength that has given people for hundreds of years. We use it to let others know that Unitarian Universalists believe in helping, acting with love, and working for justice. And that is our story for today. Our kids met on Zoom this morning for their RE classes, so I'm going to invite you, though, to sing our children's song to bless this beautiful snowy morning, all of those who are joining us here today and all of us who are joining us virtually. Please join in singing, May Peace Surround You. I invite all of you now to join me in a spirit of prayer and meditation. As we move into a time of prayer, I recommend that you start by putting your feet flat and firm on the ground. If you close your eyes, now is a good time to close them. Become aware of your body the aches you carry, 
your heart and your chest, your lungs. And let us journey into silence with this prayer. Blessed are you, O life. We come this hour just as we are in need of healing, in need of comfort with pains and sufferings, fears and anguish, hopes and longings, and all those other things we've yet to name. This hour we gather in hope. We gather in hope for an end to war, for an end to the violence that seems to surround us, for an end to the endless cycle of hurt and revenge. And we pray wisdom to those who lead our nation and to leaders around the world who seek answers to the problems of their people. We pray for those who suffer from famine and earthquake and fire and flood, for those who mourn and for those who long for death, for those who need to work and for those who cannot, for those who cannot pray for themselves and for our own needs. And so let us call to mind all the joys and sorrows in our lives, and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Let us stay seated for prayer hymn number 123, Spirit of Life.
Each day, we go about our business, walking past each other, catching each other's eyes or not, about to speak or speaking. All about us is noise. All about us is noise and bramble, thorn and din, each one of our ancestors on our tongues. Someone is stitching up a hem, darning a hole in a uniform, patching a tire, repairing the things in need of repair. Someone is trying to make music somewhere with a pair of wooden spoons on an oil drum with cello, boombox, harmonica, voice. A woman and her son wait for the bus. A farmer considers the changing sky. A teacher says, take out your pencils, begin. We encounter each other in words, words spiny or smooth, whispered or declaimed, words to consider, reconsider. We cross dirt roads and highways that mark the will of someone, and then others who said, I need to see what's on the other side. I know there's something better down the road. We need to find a place where we are safe. We walk into that which we cannot yet see. Say it plain, that many have died for this day. Sing the names of the dead who brought us here, who laid the train tracks, raised the bridges, picked the cotton and the lettuce, built brick by brick the glittering edifices they would then keep clean and work inside of. Praise song for struggle, praise song for the day, praise song for every hand-lettered sign, the figuring it out at kitchen tables. Some live by love, thy neighbor as thyself, others by first do no harm, or take no more than you need. What if the mightiest word is love? Love beyond marital, filial, national. Love that casts a widening pool of light. Love with no need to preempt grievance. In today's sharp sparkle, this winter air, anything can be made, any sentence begun, on the brink, on the brim, on the cusp. Praise song for walking forward in that light.
So every week I look forward to Arthur Brooks's newest piece in The Atlantic. He's a professor of leadership who writes about questions of meaning and happiness. In his article this week, he entitled, No One Cares. And in it, he gets at an issue I'm sure all of us deal with. So I'll ask you a question, not if this resonates with you a little bit. How many of us have ever worried about what someone else thinks? <laughs> yep, you all nodded your head. The answer is all of us, of course. It's human nature to care about what others think. In fact, more than 2,000 years ago, as the article notes, the Roman Stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius noted that, quote, we all love ourselves more than other people. That's true. The second half of his statement goes, but we care more about their opinion than our own. And this is true, and it's often painfully true. We can be driving down the highway on a fine day, enjoying some good tunes when someone passes by waving that universal sign of disapproval, and then for the rest of the morning we go on worrying about what got into some fool's crawl. Now Brooks offers us three bits of advice. I'll give you the advice and then I'll talk a bit about it. Number one, remind yourself that no one cares. Number two is rebel against your shame. And number three is stop judging others. Now, the truth about worrying about what others think of us is that people actually have far fewer opinions of us than we like to imagine. It turns out, and science has proven, that you think about you way more than others do. Another part of Brooks's advice has to do with the strange reality that most of the time, the worst thing that we're imagining in our heads is often way worse than what ends up happening. And on some level, we all know that judging others isn't just bad for them. We know that judging others, it's bad for us too. Jesus and the Buddha both warned about the dangers in judging others, and even the living legend Dolly Parton, who was the first concert I ever went to, if you cared, and I know you care about this. The living legend Dolly Parton, she warned of this in her wonderful song, Backwoods Barbie, and I'm going to quote Dolly for you this morning. Read into it what you will, but see me as I am. Now, I'm sure all of us can name someone in our lives who seems to have self-appointed themselves as if it's their job to judge other people, right? Does anybody know someone who's just really judgmental? I do. And it's not that insight and wisdom can't come from critiquing others or by being critiqued. Let me be clear, it can. Heaven knows I have given and I have gotten a lot of criticism in my life. And it can be helpful and deserved, no doubt, but I'm going to go on record and say that some of the judgment I've gotten, and some of it that I've even given, was really just an insult wrapped in a bow, as if I don't know a lump of coal when I get one. It's often the case that those of us who are good at judging others aren't so good when it comes to judging ourselves. 
Now, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like instead of pursuing an appetite that's hungry to learn from others, at least at this moment, we're kind of binging on spiritual and political junk food that just reinforces our opinion that we're right all the time. The wise thinker George Packer, way back in 2019, remember 2019, folks, before COVID, before Biden, before impeachment number one and number two, he writes this. He says that organized pathologies of adults, sometimes known as politics, find a way to infect our children, end quote. Now, nearly three years after Packer wrote those words, Nicole Carlos in Salon, just a few weeks ago, she published an article that proved him right when she opened her article with these four words, quote, the kids aren't all right, end quote. Now, what Carlos is responding to is a joint report by the American Academy of Pediatrics the Children's Hospital Association, and the American Academy of Adolescent Psychiatry, which combined represent 77,000 physicians and more than 200 hospitals. And here's what their report claims. That the 21st century issues and the way that we, the adults, are dealing with them have created a children's mental health crisis that they have called, quote, a national crisis emergency, end quote. So Packer, in 2019, he called this an infection of bad mood that he traces back to 2014, years before Trump, years before the squad, years before COVID, years before George Floyd, and here's what he writes, quote, around 2014, a new mood germinated in America. Now, this mood was progressive, but it wasn't hopeful. And it took on the substance and hard edges of a radically egalitarian ideology, end quote. Now, I'm going to say more about that in just a bit, but first note that Packer is using progressive as an adjective here and not purely in the political sense. So in New York City's public schools where Packer sends his kids, he observed as conversations about human identities slowly transformed into battlegrounds with villains and victors defined on each side. Now, in 2014, I was a second-year seminarian, and I recall around that same time, identity rise to the top of many discussions I was having in my classrooms and the institution was having as a whole. And as I think about it, I'm not really sure much has changed in the seven the seven or so years since 2014. Now, let me be clear and state that I am not saying that focusing on the plethora of identities humans claim or inherent is all bad. I don't think it's all bad. I believe that conversations about identity are necessary. But there is a negative aspect to this, and that is what pediatricians are worried about. Now, maybe you disagree and you think that everything is hunky-dory. And if that's true, then here's the thing. I hereby sentence you to Walsall School Board and City Council meetings for life. Many of those meetings do, in fact, run smoothly. I serve on a couple of the city's committees. But when things like identity or equality are discussed, 
the metaphorical gloves come off. Just look at what happened earlier this summer around the Community for All resolution. That failed. Here in Wausau, it seems, we can't even agree that we want everyone to be treated equally. Now, that is certainly progressive in the sense that something is certainly changing, but the mood around these conversations are often anything but hopeful. The news now calls this bad mood tribalism. It's a great buzzword. Now, there are two kinds of tribalism, of course. One describes how human beings organize themselves within a group. Pretty basic. But the other definition is what I'm focusing on, and this comes from the dictionary. The other definition of tribalism is when people develop behaviors and attitudes that stem from strong loyalty from one's tribe or social group. And that is not always a bad thing. But the rub is that some groups are up to no good. Why are they up to no good? My best guesstimate is that they're bloated on judgment. Here are a few examples. Billionaires are an undeniably strong social group, and they think that they're job creators, and they think that they're special. And so they fight off laws and regulations so they don't have to pay taxes or play by rules that they don't like. White people in Marathon County, Wisconsin, are a strong social group, and some think that equal outcomes for everything is a bad thing, and so they fight community for all resolutions in slick and often offensive ways. Here's another example. Woke mobs are a strong social group, and some think there is a pure way to think and speak about issues like race and sexuality, but if you question what they say, they will paint the scarlet letter C on your chest and mark you as canceled. Now, the writer and editor Ann Snyder wrote in a recent piece of hers on ideologies these powerful words. I'm going to quote her at length for a moment. This is Ms. Snyder. It is time to treat today's tribal pressures like the false friends that they are. When it comes to renewing the world, the perfect should never be the enemy of the good. And she goes on to say that tribalism abounds from vaccines to pronouns to what kind of coffee we prefer to whether we display the country flag. And because of this, we are swimming in a bizarrely banal signaling mechanism that marks friend from foe. And the litmus test trolls guarding the moat between us and them are greedy, and they are ever menacing, and they're hungry for a totalist culture making each of us more fearful and incurious, dull, and disturbingly uncreative." End quote. She goes on to ask these two questions. How did we get here, and is there a way out? Now, I suppose I should have dug around for something Jesus or the Buddha or Julian of Norwich said about this, but instead I thought that I'd share something written for children so that there would be as little confusion as possible. Now, it seems to me that Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You'll Go offers another way to think about humankind's tendency to judge others and America's collective bad mood. So the narrator says this about life and living. You're going to get mixed up, and you already know that. 
You'll get mixed up with many strange birds as you go, so be sure when you step. And when you step, step with care and remember that life's a great balancing act. I'd like to summarize what Seuss is getting at like this. In life's journey, you are destined to encounter strange things different than you. And we are, all of us, a work in progress. None of us are done yet. And we should be comforted by that because if all of us are finished as we are, my word, what a mess we are. In fact, we live in a culture that counts calories while kids in Afghanistan are starving. And here in Wisconsin, one in seven children face hunger. You see, when in the Bible the writers say the kingdom of God, what they're imagining is a time when it's no longer the madness of humankind in charge of the world, but God and God's mercy. And as the sensitive preacher Fred Beekner asks, can we take such a message seriously knowing what we know about ourselves and the world? And it's this question that's been on the mind of people of faith for centuries. People who dream and yearn and mourn and pray for a world without tribalism and hunger and judgment. And it is the church and the church's project for more than 2,000 years that hopes against hope that one day our struggles and our hopes and our cares will give birth to a phoenix of new vision that, as our Episcopal siblings like to say, set our hearts on fire for love. You see, in our Congregationalist tradition, it is not just the preacher who does the work. If you come to church here, you have to share some of the work yourselves. And I've told you before, and I will tell you again, that where you are in those pews is not to satisfy my ego or fill up some bottom line. You're here to be a witness in the pew to the person next to you. You are a living reminder to me to the person next to you and to the city and state overfilled with judgment and hatred. You people who sing songs of hope and stay late into a Sunday afternoon to see how you can help refugees and children with no place of this, in this world to call home find a home after all. I certainly believe that there is good reason to be angry and afraid these days. We deal daily with racism and poverty climate change, and other injustices that cause us great pain. But us versus them thinking will not bring the change we need. If we do not own our fears, they will fester and they will keep injecting our politics and our culture and our religion with just keeps divisions and judgment and business. And I don't think we can allow our desire for goodness to torture us into doing the awful things we see on TV and social media killing each other, humiliating each other, abusing power and privilege, and failing to see the face of God in others. Father Richard Rohr, who I'm indebted to for this insight, says, we must bring as much passion to our cause as do those who build the walls. But our job, he says, is to tear down walls. As St. Paul tells us in the poetry of the King James, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And Paul goes on to tell us to think of yourself, rather he tells us not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think instead with what he calls sober judgment, 
For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function. You see, Unitarian Universalists, they read St. Paul's word and they translated it. And if you're a disciple of this faith, then you believe that we should accept one another and keep on learning together. And those aren't my words. Those are the words of our faith's third principle. And it is this almost impossible stance toward life and the people we share it with that is our spiritual vocation. And a vocation is not a job, and to confuse the two is to make a mistake. A vocation which actually means that to which you are called is something else entirely. A vocation is that urging you cannot resist. It has more to do with who you are and who you wish to become than with what you do. In our religious tradition, we believe that it is the people who make the church. Its present and its future are yours. Our faith believes that we have been called and that there is a priesthood and a prophethood of all believers, as the Unitarian minister James Luther Adams liked to say. The thing is, even when the news is bad, if you listen closely and if you look closely, you'll see that there are salt-of-the-earth people out there doing good things. Now, they might not have millions of followers on Twitter, and they don't have platforms to perform on, and they don't have titles or black robes or team jerseys. They come from all walks of life, and they're trying to end wars or press for gay rights or women's rights. They're stocking shelves at food pantries. They're calling to check on people. or They're being a good spouse or parent. They're doing laundry down at the women's shelter or they're teaching in Sunday school. These people are understanding and they're curious and they're eager to learn from others. And what they do is they practice love and joy and peace and patience, which are the ancient fruits of our faith. It has been said that as we seek to share those gifts with a needy and tireless world, it's there that we'll find our joy and our vocation. And it's that work, it's that work which may take the rest of our lives, but that work begins today and tomorrow. And so let us give thanks. Amen. Please rise now as you're able for our closing hymn number 108. My life flows on and in the song.
before I conclude this morning's service, I want to remind everyone that upstairs after the service today, our congregation will talk about the ways that you as individuals and us as a collective can help the refugee resettlement efforts. There will be a wonderful presentation that Roxanne and Joyce will be presenting to us. And there's some food and coffee so you won't go away hungry. It's not lunch, but you'll be all right. <laughs> I think there are a couple of uh, other announcements that I think I need to make, too. While I have you standing, everybody likes to stand for announcements. All right. Uh, there's a Red Cross blood drive, Give Blood, It Saves Lives. That's their slogan on the 23rd of November. And then the other notice is that Sunday, December 5th, is the church's annual meeting. So put that in your date books. Friends, reach out with your hearts. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Please have a seat, relax, and enjoy the postlude, and I'll see you soon.